Hello. All right, so we are continuing our summer series on the 12 minor prophets. I've been tasked with, I believe this is session four, if I, if I remember correctly. And um, so I've been tasked with Amos tonight, so that's what we'll be going through the book of Amos. Um, this sermon is an overview of the entire book. And so for that reason, I won't be systematically going through the book verse by verse. Uh, but I, I hope to be able to show you the overall theme, structure of the book, and its basic major theological concerns or whatnot. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we can get started. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness, for your mercy, and your grace toward us, O God. Lord God, I pray that you would help me tonight, O Lord. Help me to speak your word with clarity, O God, and with boldness and with a sense of um, reverence, O God. Lord, uh, keep any of us, O God, from our hearts from wandering and our minds, God, from being unattentive to your word tonight, O God. Lord, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law, O God. Lord, we pray that, that you make your testimonies be a delight to us and be our counselors, O Lord. Lord, give us life according to your word. Lord God, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are a rock, you are a redeemer in our stronghold. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So, Brother Cortland, he says with much conviction that multitasking is a myth. I once heard it said that multitasking could be defined as the art of messing up a whole bunch of things at the same time. And if I'm being honest, I'm terrible at multitasking. And I would suspect if most of us in this room are being honest, we're not very, you're not very good at it either. And in this book, this book of Amos, what we see here is we will see a rebellious people a wayward people. Some of these people have an erroneous view of election. And these people that we see in this book are much like us. Many of us are rebellious and burdened with blind spots. We have a tendency to separate the mercy of God from the justice of God. Many of us could be accused of disconnecting the benefits of the covenant from the responsibilities of the covenant. And some of us probably sometimes place a wedge between the worship of God and loving our neighbor. Nevertheless, at the same time, we also see in this book a powerful, sovereign, loving, gracious God and king who was able to achieve wondrous heroic, historic deeds all at the same time. He judges sin while simultaneously giving mercy. He disciplines while graciously calling his wayward, rebellious, stubborn people to repentance and covenant faithfulness. And he sends a prophet with a message of judgment and mercy for the ancient people of Israel and for us today. So this book of Amos puts before us our Lord 
He puts God on display as an inflexibly holy, uncompromisingly righteous God who delivers mercy in the midst of judgment. So my prayer is, is that we would see the multifaceted glory of our Lord and Savior. And by the end of the sermon, I pray that we would see all of these multifaceted aspects of our Lord. So in order to help us do this, I've broken up the sermon in three sections, and I've titled them The Prophet, The People, and The Promise. The Prophet, The People, and The Promise. So let's look at the first section. That's not the first section of the books. first section of my sermon (laughs) is The Prophet. Who was Amos? We know very little about Amos personally outside of what's written in this particular book. In Amos 1.1, the Word of God says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tokea, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So these historical notes and facts that we see in this book let us know that Amos was a contemporary of Hosea and and Isaiah. He's preaching at the same time these two other prophets are preaching. Um, Amos 1.1 lets us know he's from Tokea. He's from Tokea. He's as a town 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He's a prophet. God, he's, a, he's from Judea, the, the southern kingdom, but God sends him to the northern kingdom to be a prophet to that nation. So he, like I say, he's a native of Judah, and he's sent to the northern kingdom Israel. Also, uh, we know from reading Amos 7.14, the Bible says, or um, Amos says, I was, no, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. So we know that Amos was a, was a shepherd, and he tended sycamore trees. So despite the fact that we have very little inf- personal information about Amos, the information that we do have does tell us a lot about this prophet. The fact that he was a shepherd means that he was not a prophet by profession. He was not a professional clergyman. He was not a politician from Israel. And so consequently, his words were the words of an everyday man, not a religious professional. He wasn't trying to climb the ranks of the religious establishment. He wasn't trying to be the president of the SBC. His theology is concrete, specific, and to the point, he didn't play word games. He wasn't worried and concerned about being nuanced. He spoke the word of God with clarity because he wasn't concerned about his poll numbers. He was concerned about delivering the word of God to the people of God. So Amos' message is clear and unmistakable. God is just. And his covenant people must be the same way. The fact that he was from Takeo lets us know that he was, like I say, he was sent by God to Israel from Judah, the southern tribes, to the northern tribes, which means he would have been somewhat of an outsider to them. And thus, he would have had different views. He would have had a different purview than they had, and he would not have had the same blind spots that those people had. 
So at this time, historically, we know that in Israel's history, that Jeroboam, we, we read this here, that Jeroboam was on a throne in Israel. This is the second Jeroboam. Second Kings 14, 28 tells us, it says this, the word of God says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So in other words, this Jeroboam, he was extremely successful from a, a political, geopolitical aspect. Uh, the restoration of Damascus and Hamath and the political leadership of Jeroboam, it brought Judea, Judah to, a, they were very prosperous and very prominent. Some historians say that the nation hadn't experienced this type of prosperity since Solomon was king. Okay, so the kingdom prospered, their borders were expanding, their political and economic well-being, what it did was it gave them a false sense of security. But because Amos is an outsider, he was from Judah, he wasn't blinded by that financial prosperity. He wasn't blinded by what was going on there. He could see the internal moral decay and the covenant breaking that affected those people. All they could see, those people in Israel, they could see was we're being blessed and everything is peaceful and the borders are expanding and they misinterpreted it. So as God's covenant people, they had a distorted view of election. All they could see was because everything was going good, they assumed God was, was good with them. That they, they misinterpreted temporary blessings with the overall eternal blessing from God. So all they could see was tulips and roses, but Amos could see what was really going on. So many people, many professing Christians across the span of time, we have this problem. We suffer from this blind spot. We misconstrue temporary blessings as a sign of God's favor upon us, right? Applications here is this. Don't misread and overestimate peace and money. Just because God is blessing you and you experience peace does not equal that you're being righteous. It's a whole lot of rich people going to hell. Amen? Right? So being at peace with something does not equal that God blessed it. You should not be praying all the time, God, give me peace with something. What you show, first step should be, what does the word of God say? Is this righteous? Not, Lord, Lord give me peace with my sin but Lord, am I doing the godly thing here, right? So Amos's background as an outsider gives him a, a, a unique perspective. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need that. We need to hear from other people, but here's what I'm not saying. When we're having conversations about righteousness and the word of God, I don't mean call outsiders outside of, I'm not talking about calling unbelievers. They, if you're talking about something religious and righteous and having to do with the word of God and obedience, you don't call unbelievers that don't have the word of God to come judge that. That's not what I'm saying. Don't do that. If you're trying to learn how to play basketball, you call LeBron. You're trying to learn about Jesus, you read the word of God. So sometimes, like I said, we need to hear from people like Amos, 
people with a different perspective and a different purview, men. That's why God gave you that spouse, because you need to hear her perspective and vice versa. So Amos' background would have been a perfect fit for his work as a prophet to the people of Israel because he was out, he, the, he was from, uh, Tokeo was like a, a place out in a, somewhat in the wilderness, so, and he was a shepherd. He would have been a little rough around the edges. And God was sending him to send a, deliver a hard message to a stiff-necked people. And he needed to be able to be, to, to be flat-footed and stand firm and speak the word of God without being afraid. Right? So that takes us to the second point, the people. Second section, the people. Now, this is going to be the longest section of the sermon because we've got to kind of flesh this out. So when we read the book of Amos, we, we should read it as an ex, one extended prophecy, right? You shouldn't read it as a bunch of different prophecies disconnected from one another. It's one extended prophecy, not multiple prophecies, okay? So furthermore, Amos' message has a specific target. Amos is prophesying the word of God to the covenant people of God. You understand that? That is a message to the people of God, first and foremost, primarily. So in Amos 3, 1, verses 1, two, 1 through 2, the word of God says this, Hear this word, that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You and only you have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He talking to a specific group of people right here. Amos 5.1, hear this. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. He's talking to Israel. Amos 5.4, for thus says the Lord, the house of Israel, seek me and live. He's talking to who? Who's he talking to? That's not a rhetorical question. Who's he talking to? Israel. Amos 6.1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first nation to whom the house of Israel comes. He's talking to Israel. And Amos 17.15 or 7.15 says, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Listen, I think I've kind of made the point, right? He's talking to Israel, right? So look, we will misinterpret and misapply this book, the warnings and the exhortations in this text if we do not see Amos as chiefly and essentially talking to the people of God. Okay? God is sending his prophet to his rebellious, wayward covenant people. Do not read this text and read USA. Read this text and read people of God. So now Amos is focusing the point of his message to the people of God, the people of Israel, this wayward, rebellious, stubborn, covenant-breaking people. And in, and in verse 2 of chapter 1, we see this, what you, you should consider this like the introductory, introductory portion of the prophecy, right? It says, the Lord roars from Zion. 
and the, I'm sorry, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So we know last week, Pastor Rolo, in his last sermon, he said, whenever you see the Lord, the word the Lord in all caps, that's the covenant name of God, that's God's personal name, personal covenant name. And the fact that Amos is using God's personal covenant name at the very beginning of his prophecy points to the redemptive and covenantal concerns that God has in the rest of the book, right? Chapter 1, verse 2 is a summary of the entire prophecy of the book, and it sets the tone for the rest of the book. And you should know from the very beginning that the Lord is a roaring lion. Amos presents the Lord Yahweh as a roaring lion whose voice brings destruction to the most treasured and plentiful lands of Israel, the rich pasture, uh, pasture lands in the forests of Mount Carmel. So the rest of this book of Amos is an extended rebuke and a calling back to, of the people of God to the covenant faithfulness so that they would avoid God's covenant curses. This book is written to the people of God. This book is written to us. The exhortations in this book is written to you. Amen? So, why does God send Amos to preach this message? Because of his people's, of their unfaithfulness to the Lord and his covenant with them. They were idolatrous and they did not love their neighbor according to the word of God, according to the covenant of God. So you could, listen, so the, 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 the literary structure of this book is, the structure is pretty clear, but it is complex, right? So the introduction is chapter 1, verse 1. Then the summary is chapter 1, verse 2. And then you see these sets of judgments. So the main body of the, the, the Amos consists of these three judgments. So that would be chapter 1, verse 3. And then it's a long extended judgment all the way to chapter 2, verse 16. Then there's another judgment from chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 12. Then the third judgment is chapter 5, verse 1 to, chap to chapter 6, verse 14. So it's these three huge judgments against the people that he's laying out. Then when you get to chapter 7, there's a series of five visions. And then in chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, is a concluding salvation prophecy or oracle. So that's how the book is laid out. And these first sets of, first set of judgments, they use a numerical formula to proclaim judgment against the nation, the nation surrounding Israel, but ultimately it, it is functioning as an inescapable indictment against Israel. So let me just, I'm going to explain it, just, just stay with me for a minute, okay? So the very first judgment starts in chapter 1, verse 3. Okay? 
And what Amos is doing here from a literary perspective is absolutely brilliant, okay? What he's doing here, listen to this. He says, so in verse 1, I mean, sorry, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, the Bible says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Haziel and it shall devour the stronghold, the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. So that's verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. It's an indictment against Damascus because they threshed Gilead and iron sledges. And you see this same thing being repeated over and over again. Again, in uh, verses 6 through 8, it's an indictment against Gaza because they exiled a whole community of people. And then in 9 through 10, you see an indictment against Tyre because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. And then in, in verses 11 through 12, it's against Edom because he pursued his brother with the sword. And 13 through 15, it's against Amnon because they ripped pregnant women open in order to enlarge their territory. And, and then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it's against Moab because they burned the bones of King Edom. And then you get the verse... 2, 4 through 5, and it's an indictment against Judah, the southern tribes, because they rejected the instruction of the Lord and didn't keep his statutes. So now we know from other Bible verses or books of the Bible that, that the prophets frequently would proclaim judgments against other nations as a means to encourage the people of God, right? And so what Amos is doing here, if you had a map, and you knew where these places were, he's systematically delivering judgments against all of Israel's neighbors, right? So he's going, he does a judgment against Damascus, which is in the northeast, and then Gaza, which is, from the, Philist is the Philistines in the southwest, and then he goes to Tyre, northeast, goes back up here, then he goes to the southeast, and then he goes to the east, and then he goes to the west, and then he goes to the south, and the other interesting thing, and I'm not into numerology, but if you are, <laughs> he does seven judgments. He gets the seven judgments. So you got to think from the, from the you got to use your imagination here. Imagine being in Israel. You're prosperous. The countries, the, the borders are expanding. There's peace everywhere. And this, this Amos, this, this, this prophet comes and he starts prophesying. But everything he's saying is about your enemies, right? And he, uh, I'm going to pick on Christian real quick. So let's say, and I'm prophesying, and I'm like prophesying against that enemy, and that enemy, and that enemy, and that enemy, and I'm circling everybody but him. And he gets to number seven. What is he thinking? Praise God. Get him, Lord. Look at all them sinners out there. Get to number seven, he's done. I'm the people of God. Right? But what he's doing here, if you pay really close attention, if you look back at verse three, there's this, this formulation that never gets completed. Right? So he, listen to what he says. He says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not rebuke, rebuke the punishment. 
but because they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. That's only one judgment. And if you read through this whole book for the sake of time, I'm not going to do it. You got to do it on your own time. He does this for all seven people. He says three, not four. I'm sorry, he says three and four, but then he only lists one. He doesn't, so what he's doing here, family, is he's setting a trap. He's setting a trap for Israel. Because by the time he gets to chapter 2, verse 6, now this is the only time when he does his indictment against Israel that he actually names four indictments. Okay, turn there. I'm going to read it. Starting at verse 6, in chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. Now this is the, this is the, against Israel. For three transgressions of Israel and four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. That's one. Those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of the earth and turn, turn aside the way of the afflicted and a man goes into the same girl and a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. That's two. Right? Verse 8, they lay aside, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine of those who have been fined. That's three. Then when you get to verse 9 through 11, he gives you the basis for this entire judgment. He says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, who, whose height was like the height of cedars, who was as strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above his roots and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? And then you get to verse 12. It's the fourth indictment. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophet, saying, you shall not prophesy. So he does this numeric. This is the only place, this is the only time in this book where that, that numeric formula for indictments gets brought down. And the reason for that is you're the people of God. It should not ever be said about you that you're doing this type of stuff. So look, when you go back, look at verse 2, verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, God's indictment against Israel is targeted at their treatment of the poor and the needy among the people of God. Okay? This is a clear and obvious violation of the covenant. Leviticus 24, 39 through 43. Right? This is a, the, you've been saved and you've been redeemed by God. He brought you out of the land of Egypt. How dare you treat people this way in your own borders? I'm sorry, I should have had it already pulled up. 25, Leviticus 25 through 39, uh, verse 39. I'm going to read it to you real quick. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a higher worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve you into the year of jubilee. 
Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. This is, you're violating the covenant, right? This ain't just about the poor. This is about how you treat the poor in relationship to the fact that you are my covenant people. You ain't supposed to do your brother like that. Verses chapter 2, back in Amos, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, 7b, I'm sorry. It says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. That's Leviticus 18.6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. You violating the covenant. You ain't supposed to do that. You my people. Verses Chapter 2, verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine of those who have been fined. Now, this, again, is another violation of the covenant. Exodus 22, 26. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, and I will be compassionate for him. You're supposed to be the people of God. You're not supposed to treat your brother like that. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. The covenant people of God were encouraging consecrated men to sin, to sin. Number 6.3 is very clear about this. Consecrated Nazarites are not supposed to drink wine. It's pretty clear. It's some pretty cl- See, we fight all the time about what the, how you're supposed to interpret the Bible, right? Like, you know how we have disagreements about certain things, but some stuff you ain't supposed to have disagreements about. It's too clear. Right? And then the other part is, look at this, in suppressing the word of God. He says here, you command the prophets, you shall not prophesy. You're the people of God. You're not supposed to cause the consecrated men to sin. You're not supposed to suppress the word of God. So listen, I got rules in my house. Right? My kids know they can't jump on my furniture. They can't. That's just my rule. You, I pay for it. You can't jump on my furniture. Okay? Now, if your kid come over there and jump on my furniture, I'm going to politely ask them to get off. But my kid's getting smacked because they know better. Now, if you keep bringing your kids to my house, they eventually going to get smacked too. But these are the people of God. You know better. Right? You know better. You ain't supposed to treat your brother like that. That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is not just about feeding hungry people out on the street. This ain't just about that. This is about covenant relationships with God. There should not be among us poor people that are being neglected. That is a travesty. That should not happen. So I don't have time to dissect this entire book. Okay? But if you read ahead, you'll see that Amos 
is consistently and unambiguously indicting the people of Israel for two summary charges. It's mistreatment of their brother and unjust treatment of the poor brothers and, and, and downtrodden Israelites and idolatry. Okay? Two of them together. Now, let me just help you understand what that is. All that is is the first and second table of the Ten Commandments. Okay? The first four commandments are how you're supposed to worship God, and the last six is how you're supposed to treat your neighbor. Right? That's what that is. Amos is just, what this book is, this in, it's a huge indictment against these people that are rooted in those two charges. Okay? Unjust treatment of a fellow brother and idolatry against the Lord. And the rest of the book, you see this constant back and forth interweaving of Amos calling his people back to covenant faithfulness in these two areas. That's the whole book. So in Amos 3, 4, uh, 13 through 14, right, here's what, the, here's what the word of God says. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the, authors, the altars of Bethel. You remember what Bethel is? Remember when we did the, uh, okay, I'm going to remind you. When the nation split in two, right, the southern, the king of the southern tribe, his name is escaping me right now. The king of the northern tribe, I'm sorry, his name is escaping me. What's his name? Uh, anyways, he, so he built a temple in Bethel. So the people wouldn't go down to Jerusalem anymore to worship God because he was afraid their hearts was going to turn back to David's son. So he built an illegal, unauthorized temple in Bethel so that they could, he had his own priest, his own sacrificial system. He had all that going on, and it was against the word of God. It's idolatry. It's pure idolatry, right? And so what you see here in verses 13 to 14, God's going to judge that. And if you drop down to verses 4 through 1, chapter 4, verse 1, that's back to injustice. It says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, okay, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who says to your husband, bring that we may drink. Now, that's clear. He said, cow Bashan is a woman. I'm sorry, I didn't write it. Okay, these are women who are encouraging their husbands to go out and sin, crush the poor and the needy so that they could benefit from it personally. Wicked evil. You ain't supposed to do that to your brother. You know why you ain't supposed to do that to your brother? Because you was once a slave in Egypt. And when you was a slave in Egypt, God didn't treat you that way. What he did was he was redeemed you. Verses chapter four, we're still in the same verse. Chapter Chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It says, Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilead and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer sacrifices of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. Idolatry. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. He says, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter Gilgal. 
or cross over to Beersheba. Again, idolatry. You drop down to uh, chapter 5, verse 23. It's probably one of the most popular passages in Amos. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up the Sekuth, your king. You shall take up Sekuth, your king, and Kayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. That, you got both of them there. He's indicting them there for injustice to the people. He's telling them, he's demanding them in verse 3, or 23. He says, I lost it. Verse 24, let justice roll down like waters. You ain't, you're, not, you're not a just people. You shouldn't be like that. But he, it's not just that. It's idolatry. It's both. God is, God, listen. The people are being called out for their covenant unfaithfulness. Okay? And in many times, in many ways, they violated the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. If you go back to Amos chapter 3, Verses 1 through 2, the basis for this whole thing is this. Listen to this. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's on the basis of the fact that he has a special relationship with them. God knows these people in a very special way. God with his own mighty arm redeemed these people out of slavery in Egypt. And the Lord set them apart. He led them through the wilderness. He tabernacled with him, with them. And Israel enjoyed privileges as the people of God that no other nation has ever known. How can you treat people in your own borders that way? How can you do that? So because they had this great, covenant that God had made with them, they got great responsibility, family. To whom much is given, much is required. Look, if you go back to Exodus 20 and you read the Ten Commandments, when you teach your kids the Ten Commandments, don't let them, do not teach them the Ten Commandments without teaching them the preamble, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's part of the Ten Commandments. Okay? That's the basis. The, the reason why those people are supposed to obey him is because he was gracious to them. You understand that? The covenant is front-loaded. You get paid first. So what Amos is doing here is he's interweaving indictments of idolatry and failure to love one's neighbor. And all this is is an extended extrapolation of the first and second table of the Ten Commandments. That's all it is. And it's all on the basis of the fact that you are his covenant people. Do not commit idolatry against the Lord your God. 
Do not have no other gods other than me. Do not worship no false idols. Okay? Honor the day of the Lord. Okay? And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why? Because God saved you. Amen, hallelujah, somebody. You're not just supposed to care about poor people just because those people are poor. You're supposed to care about poor people because when your rich king saw you being poor, he let go of his rights to make you rich. It's not for no reason. It's not unanchored to something. Because if you unanchor it from something, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get tired one day. You're going to get tired. You're going to get tired. You're going to get tired of these knuckleheads over here because people are sinners. And they just want your sandwich. But if you disconnect it from the fact that God saved you when you was yet a sinner, and he'll never leave you and never forsake you, you won't get tired. People of God, listen to me. We have a high and holy calling. The worship of God must be pure, absent of idolatry, and our love must be sincere and without hypocrisy. You got to do both of those at the same time. It's called multitasking. <laughs> right? We cannot disconnect our worship of God from the truth of God's word. We have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we cannot separate love for neighbor from the revelation of scripture. You can't do that. Okay? We must ground our worship in the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled every covenant promise on our behalf. Right? And we must anchor our love in the poor. I'm going to say this again. In the fact that when Christ was rich, he became poor for us. See, that's why some of us have problems with some things when people tell you stuff. Let me, let me, let me. So 1 Corinthians I think it's like chapter 6 through like 13. All Paul is talking about is waving your rights. That's all he's saying. Wave your rights. Why? Because Jesus waved his rights for you. That's it. That's it. That's all he's asking. He ain't asking you to do nothing. He ain't done. That's all. Wave your rights. You don't have to exercise every right that you have. If I know my brother got a problem with drinking, what should I do, family? Don't drink in front of him. Ladies, if you know your, your, your brother in the Lord got a problem with lust, what should you do, family? Should you say to him, that's your problem, fix it yourself? Because if Jesus would have done that to you, it'd be a hot bed in hell waiting for you right now. Do, just do what Jesus did for you. That's it. Ain't nothing special. Oh, I'm sorry. It is very special. Let me restate that. It's very special. It ain't, diff- it, ain't, it, ain't, uh, it ain't complicated. How about that? Wave your rights. Why? Because Christ waved his. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. 
we must never be named among those who make the great commission and the great commandment enemies. Don't ever do that. That's from the pit. You can do both of those at the same time. I'm confident that you can. You can do both. Right? So as God's covenant people, there's this practical expectation of obedience because of what God has done for them. You understand that? God is looking at them and saying, I just want you obey me because I saved you. That's it. Obey me because I saved you. Right? Yet, instead of obedience from Israel, God received rebellion. And, and to their great dismay, Israel is going to receive, we know from redemptive history, that they eventually receive judgment. Right? So, but these people, according to Amos, turn to Amos 7. Verse 10, Amos 7, verse 10. So these people, they refuse to hear any message of judgment. Listen to what the word of God says. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, this false temple, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. And Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and it's the temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, no prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of a sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. They ain't trying to hear. They don't want to hear the word of God. Because all they want to hear is blessing and prosperity. They want to hear peace, peace, but there's no peace because you're violating the covenant. If your kids are being disobedient, what's getting ready to happen? Probably not peace. So, and then again, in, according to Amos 4, 6 to 4, chapter 4, verses 6 to 13, they would not return to the Lord. I know I got you bouncing around all over the place. I apologize, but it, it's all making a point. Just stay with me. According to Amos 4, 6 through 13, it says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Seven, I also withheld from you rain. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain to one city and send no rain to another city. One field would have rain, and the field which did not have rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you would not return to me. And then it just goes on and on like this until you get to chapter 5. They wouldn't return to the Lord when he was graciously disciplining them so that he could call them back. So he's like this over and over. This goes on for centuries, right? 
So there's nothing left but judgment for them at this point. Right? They wouldn't repent. And because they wouldn't repent, God won't relent. Right? So here's the problem with these people. They have a misinformed religious expectation. Okay? So they believe because since they are the chosen people of God, God, his justice is different. You understand that? That's what they think. They believe, or at least they acted like they believed, as if God was going to, because they're the people of God, he's lowering his standards. All right? He only, he's going to judge all these other nations for being wicked, but he's not going to judge his people for that. All right? They think that God's conception of justice is somehow relaxed because we're in Israel now. We don't got to do all that. Right? That's how they're playing it. So here's my question to you, family. Are, are we like that? Is that how we are? Do we think that a, just a simple, mere profession of faith is the same as salvation? That you simply just walked up here one day, said, I love Jesus, boom, and now that's it? You saved? Is that what you think? Do you believe that just simply, and, and, and that, that all you have to do is say that prayer, and there has to be no fruit of repentance? That God, that the grace of God can actually save a person and they won't turn from sin? Is that what you think? You don't believe that a person will grow in holiness? Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, I will remove the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, write the law upon your heart, and cause you to walk in my commandments. That's part of the promise, family. When the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us to renounce ungodliness and ungodly ways. You're starting to see, here's what we do. We separate salvation, justification from sanctification, and it's all one bag. It's all one bag. You're not getting one without the other. Do you believe that having a feeling of concern for your brother and sister that's in trouble, that's poor, is the same as actually helping them? Do you think that? Do you think I can see Brother Matthew back there, cold and on the ground, shivering, got a blanket in the back of my truck, and I'm passed by him, and I'm like, oh, I feel bad for Matthew. You think that's the same thing? Do you think knowing good theology is the same as knowing God? Is that what you think? Do we think that we, because we profess to be Christians, that we don't actually have to grow in holiness and sanctification and bear fruit of repentance? Is that what you think? Amos 5.21 says this says that God hated the assemblies. Amos 5.21. I hate and despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Family, please don't be coming to this church week after week and give the Lord a reason to hate our sacred assemblies. That's hitting your ear funny, ain't it? You know why? Because this is what's going on with some of y'all. I can't lose my salvation. Jesus died for all my sin. Jesus died for your sanctification too. Here's, here's what I'm trying to get across. If you've been saved for any period of time, and you're not actually growing in practical sanctification and holiness, you're probably not a Christian. It is not enough for you to say the right words and feel the right feelings. It's not enough. That's not proof. Wait, hold on. Let me know what I'm saying. Jesus' death is enough to save you, okay? But you feeling the right feelings ain't proof that you're, that it's not proof that you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You will, in fact, grow in holiness if you are a Christian. It's going to happen. It's not not going to happen. Jesus saved you because of his blood and his blood alone, and that blood secured the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promises of the new covenant. If you are saved, you will grow in sanctification, period. And you will love your neighbor. And you will have right doctrine. And if you're not doing all of that, something's broken. So these people are idolatrous. They oppress their brothers. They fail to repent. And God, Listen, here's another... Pastor, Pastor Ed talked about this not long ago. That's what we talk about church discipline. These people, God is graciously coming after them. Right? Do they repent? Nope. You know why? You know why they don't repent? Because they're not his. That's church discipline. What, that's what church discipline is about. If you're really a brother and you're sinning and your brother come to you with an open Bible and say, hey, you're sinning. Your neighbor over there need help. Go help him. And you don't help him? And I keep, keep pushing you over there, pushing you over there. And I keep telling you, hey, stop doing that. That's sin. That's not your woman. Stop looking at her like that. And you keep doing it. You keep going. You keep going. And you keep making excuses. That's not repentance. And the, and the reason that there's church discipline is so that you won't have a false impression that you are actually saved. So these people are idolatrous, they oppress their brothers, they fail to repent at God's gracious discipline. So for this reason, God's not relenting because they're not his people. So what he's going to do then, at this point, he's going to fulfill his covenant promise of judgment. Which brings us to the third point, the promise. Right? So we know, like I said earlier, redemptive history tells us that God does not relent from the covenant promise of judgment that Amos lays out, right? So God, in his holiness, will not tolerate sin among his people. Idolatry will not be accepted among the people of God. Injustices against the poor will not be put up with in, within the borders of Israel. Nevertheless, out of his great mercy... 
in God's covenant love, God says he will judge the nation and show mercy at the same time. Turn to Amos chapter 9. Right? In verse 11, listen to this. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as, it, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. So here in verse 11 where he says, he'll raise up and repair David's booth. So what a booth is, is just, it's a temporary uh, dwelling or a hut, like a, it's like a makeshift crude shelter, right? And so the promise here is, is that if you go back through eight, he, I'm, I'm not, he says in chapter eight, I'm, they're not listening. I'm about to crush them. Okay? I'm, I just, they're not listening. Okay? But in the middle of that judgment, he says, I'm going to repair David's broken down hut. David's house is in disarray. It's in shambles. It's falling apart. The nation is split. The kings are all crazy. None of them following the Lord. None of them have the heart that David had, right? And God is promising here to raise up the booth, to raise up David's greater son in fulfillment of the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So while he's going, while he's in the middle of his, at the very end of his judgment, he says he's going to, I'm going to judge and at the same time honor the covenant promises that I made to Adam, Abraham, and David. So historically, like I said, we know these people eventually get judged. God uses the Assyrians as his rod of anger against Israel. And Israel is destroyed. This false temple is destroyed. Judah gets destroyed eventually. Jerusalem is destroyed. God remains true to his promises. And he brings judgment against these people. The nation is conquered. The people are sent into exile. And the people are scattered all abroad across the Mediterranean because God didn't relent. Because God is just. And God is going to follow through on his promises. But if we fast forward in redemptive history, we see that in God's covenant judgment, he was simultaneously working out his covenant promises in grace and mercy. So when God was using these godless Assyrians to crush Israel according to these covenant judgments, the Assyrians, they sent the people out into exile. They were outside of the promised land. The Babylonians sent the, the Judeans, the, Ju- the people from Judah out. They, got out of Is- they were out of Jerusalem, they were outside of Jerusalem. But it was during Israel's exile, outside of Jerusalem, that they established synagogues all over the entire Mediterranean. Right? And these synagogues become the launching pad for Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Every time Paul goes to a new city, it says, 
Paul goes to the synagogue, as was his custom. How did that synagogue get there, family? And when Paul would go to these synagogues, Jews, sometimes they, some Jews would believe, and then they would kick him out, and he'd go preach to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles came to faith, hearing the gospel, and bowed, to, bowed the knee to Jesus, David's greater son, David's true son, and thereby fulfilling the covenant promise that we see here in Amos chapter 9, verse 11. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 12. He says, he's going to raise up uh, the booth of David, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it in the days of old. Listen to this. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Those are Gentiles, right? And all the nations who are called by my name. Right? So God, while he was judging Israel, was planning for the future redemption and, and salvation of a bunch of Gentiles that wasn't even born yet. Don't tell me that election ain't biblical. You reading some other Bible that I ain't reading. Right? So what we see here is he's judging the people. He's judging Ezra, um, um, Israel. And you see judgment and mercy happening at the same time, family. He's crushing Israel. He exiles them. He was looking forward to the future. He was doing two things at once. He was multitasking. Right? And in the final ultimate act of judgment and mercy, the father directed another godless nation, Rome, to take the true Israel outside of Jerusalem. And God, once again, by the hands of a lawless, godless people, crushes the son, his son. But this time he crushes his true son, the greater Israel. And at the same time, while the father crushes his son outside of Jerusalem, he's bringing the nations who are called by his name into his covenant. He's establishing David's true son on the throne forever. He's once and for all fulfilling his covenant promises for all of eternity. He's doing all of that at the same time, family. So in this book of Amos, we see glimpses of God's judgment against righteousness interwoven together with the promise of mercy for those who repent and return to him in covenant faithfulness. But at the cross, we see the fullness of both of those. At the cross, we see the fullness of judgment and mercy. At the cross, we see heaven and hell. We see the mercy of heaven and the wrath of hell at the cross. We see the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of men. At the cross, we see the height of holiness and the depth of God's love. Praise God for our salvation that God can excel at multitasking. He can do two things at once. Amen? Our God is good. Our God is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, O oh God. Help us cling to your testimonies, O oh Lord. Help us not impose our theological positions on the Bible, Lord God. But I pray, Lord, that your word informs our hearts, O oh God informs our doctrine, not the other way around, God. 
Turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things. Give us life in, from your word, O oh God. Confirm to your servants your promise so that we would fear you, O oh God, and we would turn to you in repentance, Lord. We need you, God. We need you, Father. We cannot believe this word without your spirit, God. We cannot obey this word without you, O oh Lord. But God, we know. Lord, we know that our elder brother Jesus has been exalted at your right hand and has received from you the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that as your people, God, we can ask you to fill us so that we might honor your name. So help us, God. Help us in our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs> you are dismissed. <laughs>